Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we are recording live on the campus of University of North Carolina. Go Tar Heels. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> um, and we are here to record an episode focusing on Russia and its domestic politics. We are going to have an opportunity to hear questions live from the students from the students in our audience here. So we're very much looking forward to hearing those questions. In March of 2024, Russia will hold a presidential election. While Vladimir Putin is nearly certain to win another term in office, given the Kremlin's efforts to control the outcome and repress the opposition, it is far from certain how domestic dynamics in the country more broadly will play out in the months and years to come. We're approaching the two-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and we will see, uh, we'll examine today, Russian public views of the war, how Putin is exploiting the conflict domestically, and potential risks to regime stability going forward. To discuss these issues and more, we're very happy to be joined by UNC's own Graham Robertson, as well as Sam Green on the podcast today. Um, Graham, Sam, uh, welcome both of you. Great to be here. Thank you. Quick introductions. Uh, Graham Robertson is a professor of political science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and director of the Center for Slavic, Eurasian, and East European Studies. And Sam Green is the director for democratic resilience at the Center for European Policy Analysis and a professor of Russian politics at King's College London. And they are the co-authors of a book called Putin's Views, of, uh, sorry, Putin versus the People. Um, Graham, I think we will start with you. Um, given that we're approaching the two-year mark of Russia's full-scale invasion, I think the key question many people are asking is about how Russians are viewing the war as we've set this up. And I know uh, you have done some really excellent survey work trying to dig into and understand how Russians are thinking about the war. Uh, what are your key takeaways from some of this recent work? Right. Well, I mean, first of all, it's 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 hard to imagine that it's two years uh, already, um, and it's been two years uh, of you know tragedy for Ukraine and 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 you know, a really unbelievable burden on uh, Ukrainian people and to uh, a significant but much lesser degree on the on the Russian people. And when this war started, um, Sam and I and, and and many others were thinking, you know, this is this is kind of an extraordinary act of self harm. For, for Russia to go in and, and invade its neighbor uh, and, and embark upon what has turned out to be, you know, a, a, was potentially a forever war, right? A war that really uh, doesn't seem to have any obvious uh, end to it and inflicting huge costs upon its, uh, upon Ukraine, but, but also upon its own population. So why is it, what is the, what are the factors that are gonna drive Russians' attitudes to the war? And I certainly, and many of us thought at the beginning that there were, there would be a rise in enthusiasm early on. That typically is the case. There's a rally around the flag uh, that happens in these contexts. But that two factors would really uh, drag public support for the war down over time. And the first was uh, the economic costs of the war, which we thought were going to be very high. And when the, the US and the Europeans moved very quickly to impose sanctions, that looked like it was going to be the case. Uh, and second were casualties from the war. That, that Russia would not be very tolerant of uh, high casualties uh, that you know resulted from from the conflict, and yet what we've seen is support for the war has remained really buoyant. Um, and the best we can tell from from surveys is that it's still well over 
uh, 50%, that support for Putin remains extremely high, uh, and that the initial surge of support for, for, for the war for Putin hasn't died off much. So why? What's the what's what's driving this? Well, in our research, there are sort of there are sort of two factors. One is a psychological factor, um, which I think ex helps to explain the resistance to uh, the impact of casualties, which is that a lot of Russians are um, uh, very uh, accepting of the war um, as part of Russia's mission in the world. So one of the ways we get at this is by asking. We we basically take uh, psychological concept constructs concepts from uh, other contexts. So from in this particular case, we're really interested in something called system justification theory, which is a fancy name for people being willing to put up with a lot of stuff in the name of their country. Right. Uh, this was originally uh, uh, a process that was identified by John Josh, who's a psychologist at, at New York University, and he used it to explain what we think of as the What's the matter with Kansas question? Why is it that people who uh, don't do particularly well out of the American economy, nonetheless, uh, are very supportive of, uh, of, 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 of patriotic policies and policies that are, uh, you know, that redistribute wealth up, upwards? And what Joss, Joss argued is essentially that there's a certain kind of person who really buys into the system more than into their own individual benefits from the war. Um, we've adapted this to the Russian context. Uh, we create a, 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 along with one of my my grad students, Elena Sirotkina, we create a whole series of questions that focus in uh, on Russians' willingness to identify with the state, even though they recognize that it hurts them. And so we ask them questions like, uh, you know, uh, Russian, the Russian uh, authorities uh, are, 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 are weak, but they're the best that we can hope for. Life in Russia is harsh, but it makes us stronger. Um, Russians are poor. But they're more spiritual. It's kind of sort of double-edged swordness of support for the regime. And what we find is that that is the single best predictor of the of support for the war. Um, it's also uh, a predictor of willingness to uh, take more casualties in the war. So people who are high on system justification tend to be pretty thick-skinned, uh, and they're 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 not tolerant. They're not uh, uh, sensitive to casualties. They're tolerant of high casualties. They're willing to spend more money. On the war than, than other people, these kinds of factors all play into this uh, sort of to support for the war that seems pretty much robust to the costs. So they're willing, much more willing to punish people for opposing the war. For example, those factors are really, really powerful. The second, and, and those relate to casualties and to the economic costs. So the second thing that we did this time, as we've always done, uh, is we underestimated the our ability to impose economic costs on Russia through sanctions. Um, the Russian economy is always is, is never as good or never as bad as Westerners say it is. And in this case, we uh, underestimated their ability to adapt to a sanctions economy, their ability to find new sources to, to sell their oil and gas to. But even more importantly than that, their ability to switch over to a war-based economy really, really quickly. And Russia is, at least according to uh, lots of anecdotal evidence that we, that we hear, um, actually experiencing some kind of an economic boom in the sense that wages are up uh, and demand for labor is up. Uh, it's harder and harder and harder to get people to uh, to work in state-run industries because private sector wages are up too. And, and so they're now in this sort of manpower shortage, economic uh, growth kind of a, like Keynesian militarism as uh, some people have called it, right? And we, we, we didn't take this into account. And I think those two factors have really reduced 
the Im 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 impact of the main things that we thought would, would be a drag on Russian support for a war. That's super interesting. Sam, I mean, I know that you all uh, at SIPA just re uh, released a really excellent report kind of focusing on some of the solutions for confronting Russia, focused on strategies of containment. But I think one of the points you make in the report, which draws on what, um, what Graham is talking about here, is um, this question of whether it's Putin's war or Russia's war. And that I think is a question that has kind of monopolized or not monopolized, but you know, really seized the attention of Western policymakers. And there's differing views across the Europe in terms of how people answer that. But what how would you answer that? I mean, is this Putin's war and his kind of miscalculation and grand desire to shape legacy and all of the other kind of reasons that we believe that drove his decision? Or is this now, given this seemingly broad support for the war, is this Russia's war? Um, well, I'm going to be disappointing and say that inevitably it's a bit of both, right? Uh, although fundamentally, it's no fundamentally, you know, I won't hedge. It's not Putin's war. Putin is the one who made the decision at the end of the day, uh, obviously, to to go to war. Um, nobody was clamoring for this war, maybe other than a couple of people around him in his, uh, uh, you know, innermost of inner circles. Um, and he bears responsibility uh, for that. Uh, it could not have happened if he didn't make that decision. It would not, I don't think, have happened if he had not made that decision. And yet one of the arguments that Graham and I have been making for a very long time is uh, you know, this argument about what we in, in the book refer to as co-construction, right? The idea that um, Putin's power, um, his ability to create compliance and to use, and to, in many ways, as we've seen over the course of this war, to weaponize uh, the Russian state, Russian society, the Russian economy, um, you know, isn't uh, you know built out of thin air. It's built out of the materials that he is able to extract from Russian society itself. It's an interactive process. Graham's talked about um, you know a lot of the factors of that in terms of of the uh, the psychology factors of resilience in in the economic structure as well. I think there is. Um, you know, at least one uh, other factor that has really contributed to Putin's durability uh, throughout his, you know, now 24 years in office or so, and and uh, and throughout this war and going forward, and it's one of the reasons why we think this war is going to remain, and this stance of geopolitical confrontation between Russia and the West is going to remain a a challenge for the West. Uh, is that the the Russian people, the fundamental nature of the relationship between the Russian people and the Russian state. Uh, does not pose um, a, a significant challenge to uh, to Putin, right? People have dealt with a tremendous amount of uh, economic hardship over the years in Russia. They've dealt with a state that is largely predatory. They understand that it's corrupt. It's not difficult to convince people in Russia that they are badly governed, right? Most people understand that. The problem for the opposition and the problem for the West has been that most Russians themselves have learned to live like that, right? They've learned to live without a state that serves them. They've learned to cope with a with a predatory state. And so as long as Putin can limit what this war demands of the Russian people, and as we've seen, right, he has not gone for full-scale uh, military mobilization. He has left let people 
you know, uh, uh, emigrate uh, who want to. He hasn't closed the border. He hasn't introduced exit visas. He has not clamped down on people trying to bribe their way out of military service. So he's left those sort of individual coping mechanisms available for people. Uh, and that, uh, you know, underpins this relationship in which those who are, as Graham described, you know, inclined to justify what the system is doing will participate. Uh, and those uh, who don't want to participate are uh, able to get on with their lives. So as long as he's able to maintain that that structure of a relationship, there is actually quite a lot of damage that he can do both to Russia uh, and with Russia uh, to uh, to the rest of the world. Just a quick follow-up for both of you, then what do you make then of some of the polling questions where um, increasingly higher proportions of Russia Russians want to see the war come to an end? I mean, sometimes people in the West look at that polling data to say, ah, look, the Russians are tired of the war. They want it to end. How do you understand um, that polling data? Graham? No, I, I don't see like a huge groundswell of people wanting the war to end. I, I, I think we're still in a position where if Putin were to turn around tomorrow and say, we won, it's now, now the war should end. People would support that. Uh, if we were to turn around tomorrow and say we haven't won, that now we have to attack Kiev again, people would support that too. Um, the vast majority of people, and I, and I think so. We're we're very much in that position where I, I think they're looking to the state. I also think that 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 you know Putin would survive losing pretty large territories because this war in 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 um, most Russians' minds, I would say, is not so much. It's not a war against Ukraine. It's a war. Ukrainians are not even in, in this war, as far as the, the, they're concerned. It's you know some it's fascists or zombies or the West or or something, right? Um, and the war against the West that's a, that's a that's a civilizational stru struggle. It's a war without an end. And so at some point you stop this phase and you wait for another phase, right? Um, so I, I think not only is there not a huge groundswell to to end the war, there's there there would it, it doesn't mean there wouldn't be support for end the war, but I think. Putin is, is really pretty well insulated from the consequences of a war in, in, in that sense. Uh, well, first of all, uh, thanks to UNC for letting us uh, do this and Barbara, uh, for you particularly, for helping to energize this whole effort. So, and for our guests, thank you all also for being here. Um, just a, a, a quick question, going back to your point about the economic hardships, uh, that certainly says something about the, uh, the effectiveness of sanctions. And uh, and I've been through uh, lots of conflicts as uh, as Barbara has, and also Andrea, uh, where we've had to come up with with options. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? Well, sanctions is usually the first thing we turn to because it's non-kinetic. It's 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 I won't say it's easy, but it's easier than sending a carrier task force in. Um, and so we've relied on uh, sanctions. Gosh, certainly since the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, to try to shape the behavior of a of a nation. What you've laid out is, I think, just another hit against the effectiveness of sanctions. And I was what that's my view. But I was wondering uh, what you both of you have taken away from this experience with that economic side of trying to, uh, you know, maneuver Putin in a in a way we want to maneuver him. How? What, what, does, what are the lessons learned to you in terms of the efficacy of sanctions? And is that something that we, you think we're, we're really putting too much emphasis on as far as being effective? Well, I think in terms of uh, sanctions against a, a country like Russia, which is not a fully market economy, right? It's a state-dominated economy that's actually able to, to pretty nimble in some ways, right? Given a short-term challenge, they can redirect into other activities. In this case, you know, it's really it's war you know, war munitions manufacturing and war material. And then on the other hand, it's finding someone else to buy 
oil and gas, which is not a hard thing to do. A country like Russia is pretty is even more robust against sanctions than than in general. Although I can't think off the top of my head of any examples of sanctions working in less than a kind of ten year kind of time frame. So that's inevitably a long term exercise, and and you know, and, and Russia is even more immune to it than most. Maybe Sam, just to pick up on that, because there are um, you know some signs of economic stress, right? So inflation is quite high inside Russia. As a result of this wartime economy, wages in the defense sector are very high, which is forcing kind of economic dislocation as workers are moving away from civilian sectors of the economy into the defense economy. Um, and that's creating labor shortages in some key areas, along with the what 1.5 million Russians who have left. So, Sam, I mean, I, and the line we hear quite a lot from the Biden administration is that the, the sanctions will be more effective over time. Is that something that you agree with? Um, look, first of all, I think it's important to know that the sanctions are, you know, are having an effect. I don't think we want to say that they're not. The, the, you've pointed to to a lot of that. You know, Russia has had to pay a cost, right, to keep its economy going. So it's it's spending something like, um, you know, six percent of GDP on direct military expenditure, not uh, accounting for all the other things that it's doing in terms of social benefits, payouts to to, to soldiers and their widows, and 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 that sort of thing. Um, something like forty percent of the budget now is going to, to to pay for the war, right? So it's it it is uh, undermining their ability to do lots of other things. It has both a near term and a short term cost for Russia. You pointed to some of the labor issues. Uh, you know, the, the war Keynesianism um, will do wonders for your top line GDP, but it's redistributive, right? It moves things um, uh, uh, away from the consumer economy, away from added productivity, uh, and uh, you know, towards uh, industries that may not be what the future of Russia, you know, would would have been imagined. Uh, uh, as by by quite a number of people, including some people uh, in in government, I think. But um, you know, the the question you put is the right one um, in in terms of will this have an effect over time. I would add an aspect to that, which is how much time do we have, right? So one of the things that this the sanctions are meant to do is not just to hit the Russian economy, but to actually hit the Russian war machine uh, directly, right? So to deprive both sanctions and export controls to to to, to deprive uh, Russia's military machine of the ability to to make the kinds of weapons that it wants to use uh, in uh, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, a recent paper that came out by Elena Rybakova and 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 colleagues at the Kiev School of Economics uh, has shown that you know such sanctions and export control have only had about a ten percent. Uh, caused about a 10% decrease uh, in U.S. dollar terms on um, in the import of, of military technology, um, so dual-use chips and that sort of thing, uh, into uh, the Russian military-industrial complex, right? So uh, over time, is that going to have an effect? Yes. How much time does Ukraine have, particularly if we're not going to bother to actually um, you know, write the checks uh, and give them the support that they need to fight a war that is, at the end of the day, also about U.S. national interests? Um, you know, it, it, the, the impact that it has over time, uh, you know, may not be enough is almost inevitably not going to be enough uh, to to win this war. Uh, I think, you know, sanctions, Jim, you mentioned the word easy. Uh, they're not easy to implement. They're certainly not easy to enforce. They're easy to put in place. And if you're a politician or a policymaker, I think it's a little too easy to say, look, we've done something. We put in place these sweeping sanctions. We did it really rather rapidly. And if they don't work, then that's an implementation failure. That's not my problem. It's the people in the bureaucracies at, at OFAC and other places who didn't you know, bother to get the enforcement right, um, or it's companies that aren't aren't complying. So you can always blame it on somebody else. It's also cost-free, relatively speaking, for 
uh, uh, for the government. If at the end of the day, what we're looking to do is to contain Russia to degrade its ability to uh, aggress against Ukraine, uh, against NATO or against uh, others, uh, no, sanctions at the end of the day are not going to be enough. Well, thanks. And just to follow up real quick, thank you for your patience, Andrea. Um, it's just to say that uh, your point is well taken in terms of a policymaker, which many of you out there will have a chance in the coming years. Uh, I think for me, the lesson learned coming out of uh, Ukraine was that too quickly we felt that all oh, these sanctions are going to have the Russians on their knees within six months. And, and, and a lot of people thought that. And that was in the media quite a bit. And I think that in a sense, uh, put the pressure off the administration to do something. And this is particularly during the Obama days when I was there. Um, and uh, it, it, it gave you an excuse to avoid making harder decisions that might be kinetic ones. Uh, you know, we're going to do sanctions. Great. Well, these are the sanctions. And now I can go home and have dinner because we've done it. We've really given them a good bop in the nose. Well, you're fooling yourself. And the more importantly, you're fooling a lot of people in the public, in the press too, thinking you've headed off on a on a tried-and-true trajectory that um, isn't necessarily going to work except over the long term. But some, you know, the you know, sanctions on real estate in London might have an immediate effect, but uh, but there's others that will really move the needle are going to take a long time. And so for me, coming out of this is that, uh, okay, we'll turn to sanctions real quick. That's, that's in the quiver in terms of a policy, uh, but it's something that you can't say, uh, we'll do the sanctions and then maybe a year from now we'll do ammunition and Patriot missile systems. No, 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 no. It's It's got to be something that comes together in a package. So, yeah. Maybe just to move off the economy and kind of look at some of the changes that are taking place within Russian society. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is changing Russia internally, domestically. Um, I, how, what are you, in, in, you know, we've, as we're talking about, it's not just the war in Ukraine, but it's this broader confrontation with the West. And that confrontation, I think, is really becoming the kind of key organizing principle of, of the Putin regime. It's the way that he justifies the regime and its repressive actions. So both of you are longtime watchers of Russian domestic politics. What are the kind of changes that maybe not that have surprised you, but that you're watching kind of transpire? What What is standing out to you? Mm-hmm. Well, so this is a, uh, you know, Sam and I documented in the book. This is a, a strategy that they started in 2012, yeah. really, of, of, of turning politics. The economy is going badly. So let's not talk about that anymore. The first decade of Putin, the economy was booming. So he was a technocrat and a liberal. And then that, your wheels came off that because actually there is a kleptocrat, not a technocrat. And so the economy stagnates. Uh, and then we need another story. And the other story became we're surrounded by the West and they're trying to you know give us their their you know their rainbow values and all of this kind of stuff right um and this is an extension of that it's sort of in my mind uh, the reducto ad absurdum of that right so we go and invade you know a peaceful country next door and pretend that it's a war against the west and now we're in an actual war right um and so it raises the stakes dramatically the first thing it does is drives out a million people many men not all of them but many of whom are you know the core of Russia's liberal community, the young people, uh, well-educated people. Um, and so it takes that whole section out of, out of politics. And, and what to me is most dramatic about the war is that it transforms, if I think, look, who's the Russian opposition now? I don't think about Navalny. I don't think about you know the, the young election monitors that I've been spending time with over the years. No, now it's the hardliners. Now it's Girkin. It's the, the Russian uber-nationalists, the really hardline uh, militarists. 
That's who Putin's opposition is, right? Um, and that's, to me, that's stunning, actually, terrifying, too. Um, and I think it has implications for the succession later on, um, should that ever happen. Uh, I think, to me, no, well, <laughs> point or another. That's, that's what we think. Right? <laughs> Although, in this case, maybe there'll be exceptions. But, but that, that's, to me, that's the most striking thing, is this complete shift in who, who actually the political opposition, to the extent there is any uh, in Russia. Sam, what would you add to that? Um, <laughs> I mean, probably not too much. It probably shows that Graham and I are, are, are you know, really fundamentally on the same page about um, about most of these things. Um, but I mean, coming back to the question of you know what am I what am I looking at? I think look, I mean, I, I'm I'm very circumspect because I can't do research the way I used to to, to like to do research. Go and spend a lot of time in Russia and you know really interact and and, and see what's going on in people's faces and on the street and and in. Uh, in the way that people are living their lives. I think we have real questions about whether or not the the ways that we used to understand Russian politics are still true. They may be, and I really don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater on a lot of this stuff. Uh, but I think there's reasons to believe that something may be changing in two things uh, in in particular. Um, one is, you know, where compliance comes from. What is it that keeps people in line? Uh, and we have generally thought, and, and I'm still inclined to think that that most of that comes from, you know, sort of horizontal relationships. So people are less, have historically been less afraid of being sort of hit on the head by the state than they are of being hit on the head by their peers, by people in their social circle, friends, family, colleagues, uh, classmates, that sort of thing. It's that fear of ostracism that tends to keep people uh, uh, in line. Um, but as the states become much more repressive and we've seen people, you know, turning in other people uh, to uh, uh, to the authorities for, uh, you know, what we would think of as fairly minor infractions, you know, conversations overheard in coffee shops and that kind of thing and messages in WhatsApp groups. Um, that uh, has the potential to really change the nature of um, of compliance, but also to change the nature of the relationships that people have uh, with uh, with one another to make those relationships much more fraught. So I have an eye on that. The other uh, is ideology. Putin has um, uh, obviously, as Graham said, since 2012, introduced a lot more ideology uh, into Russian politics. It has become um, much more central and uh, much more narrowly uh, uh, construed, much more constricting in a lot of ways. Um, but I don't yet think that we're to the point where ideology is you know, playing the role that we would expect it to in, in, in say, a totalitarian system, right? So when we've seen um, uh, crises, for example, like the Prigozhin affair, right, we didn't see ideology become a tool that people in the elite could use to decide where they needed to come down. We saw people, you know, riding the fence until Putin made it clear whether he was going to come down on Prigozhin's side or on Shagu's side, right? There was no ideological bellwether uh, to help people figure that out ahead of time. Um, similarly, we're not seeing people uh, in the elite or elsewhere in the system use ideology to gain competitive advantage, right? So people aren't, you know, accusing their competitors of of heresy in order to sideline them or to get them get them out of the way. Um, if we were to see that, and it's not, I wouldn't rule out that we will over time see that, then I think we would be facing, uh, again, a very different structure of, of, of Russian politics than we're used to uh, in the past with much more uh, unpredictable consequences. We're getting close to time for questions. So if people do have questions, please feel free to make your way down here slowly. Before we do that, though, I do want to ask you both about the upcoming election. And I know it's a real nail biter and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, so I, well, yes, I should clarify the Russian election in March. 
But Putin still seems to care a good deal about the election and the way that he announced it with much fanfare, kind of, you know, talking to the general and announcing that, yes, he will run again. Um, and Graham, you made this point when we were sitting backstage kind of about how attuned the Kremlin is to public opinion. So it's clear that that, that the Kremlin still cares. Um, so what is it that you think that they're hoping to accomplish in this upcoming election? And, and maybe just talk to us a little bit about what we should expect. Mm -hmm. I think the main purpose of this election and, and the purpose of Russian elections has evolved over time. There was a time when you know, it was really competitive. We didn't know who was going to win. And then there was a time when we knew who was going to win, but how much and who else was going to get to compete and how much cheating they'd have to do. These are all things that we that we watched very carefully. Now, I think those are not interesting questions. I think they'll cheat a whole ton. I think we won't see it as obvious as we have done in the past. What's really happening with this election, the role of this election is to solidify Putin's role for the next X number of years, right? And kind of take away, kill the conversation about succession. But on the other hand, as soon as Putin gets reelected, he's what, 71? Um, this is quite likely to be his last term. And so conversations about the lame duck won't arise immediately, and that, and it's, but, but they will start to be had. Um, and I think what, I mean, the, the, if, if I want to make the elections exciting, what I think is this is the starting gun for Putin's succession. Putin wins the election, and then the day after, we're all going to start thinking, and Russians are going to start, Russian elites are going to start thinking about who comes next. And I think that's the way to sort of, um, you know, inject some fun into this into this process and think about that as being the beginning of a new era. Why do you think this is his last one? I mean, we've got a president and a presidential contender who are in their 90s or close yep. to it. And so... Why would uh, why would Putin not want to do the same thing? Yeah, I mean, he he you know he 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 might right, but my my guess is his health is going to decline, uh, and uh, you know as he gets into his late seventies, uh, maybe not right, but maybe I'm just being optimistic. But <laughs> maybe a little optimistic. But Sam, so they, now I think the news today, Jim and I were just reading. So Boris Nadezhdin now has enough signatures to be on the ballot. I mean, what's what's that about? You know, how do you? It, I mean, I think we all understand that he probably, or not probably, he has the blessing of the Kremlin to run, and it's a highly orchestrated kind of event. But how do you interpret his participation in the election? Will he be pushed well, out of all, the open window? Uh, first <laughs> of all, I, I don't know that he actually will participate in the election. Okay. You know, nothing happens, I think you're right, you know, without some degree of, of acceptance from the presidential administration, but acceptance is always, you know, contingent and 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 temporary, right? Um, I think the question for me is, and the question sort of comes into this, uh, is to what extent is the Kremlin going to be pushed out of its comfort zone in trying to achieve what it wants to achieve, right? So what, what we think it wants to achieve, at least, is, you know, a resounding victory. It has to be a little bit bigger than victories in the past because, you know, otherwise you're losing the rally around the flag and where's all this enthusiasm that this war was supposed to, to buy, right? So... Um, it has to, you know, plausibly manufacture that, right? So yes, there will be manipulation and there's manipulation, you know, from, from the get-go in terms of how the campaign is run. Um, but people have to feel that, you know, if it's 80% at the end of the day, that has to feel genuine enough uh, to 
uh, uh, to, to to people uh, around the uh, around the system and in society more broadly. Right. Uh, right now, uh, they're playing it very cautious. They're not really doing anything that they haven't done in previous elections. They have habitually let there be one semi sort of outsider, semi oppositional candidate uh, around, in, in, except in cases when they decide it's too risky and then they want to get rid of them. So I think you know you don't want to get rid of them. Uh, get rid of somebody like Nadezhda too early because you might find that you need them down the road. They can always find an infraction if they need to and kick them off the ballot uh, really at any point between now uh, and um, and the elections without too much, I think, potential um, consequence. Um, but, you know, picking up on Graham's point about, um, you know, is this Putin's last term? Is it not? I, you know, I feel like I've heard that starting gun go off a lot of times over the last okay. 24 years. But the 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 reality is that Putin is avoiding any discussion of the future. If you look at Putin's campaign website, there is no platform on it. There are no policies project, uh, uh, proposed. There is nothing that talks about the future. There's only what uh, Andrei Kolesnikov at Carnegie has referred to as sort of the, the, the this everlasting present. Uh, and that really has been the message that Putin has given to people both in, in the elite and, and in broader Russian society, really since this war has started. And that, to me, indicates um, a, a worry that as soon as as Putin begins to give people a vision of the future, people will begin to make a decision about whether it's a future that they want to live in that will lead to people uh, drawing dividing lines uh, and some people inevitably opposing that future. Uh, he's tried very hard to avoid that. I would expect him to continue to try. Uh, but to me, the, the key question is, how long will he be able to do that? Will he be forced into a position where he really has to you know, concentrate on a core electorate uh, and, again, force people to try to choose sides uh, in Russian politics in, in a way that he doesn't have to uh, at the moment? That's the signal I'll be looking for, uh, that uh, things uh, may be shifting in the ground underneath the Kremlin. We have our first question right there. Right. So again, please make your way to the microphone so you can pose your questions and hear them on the Brussels Sprouts podcast. And so before you ask your question, maybe just give us your name um, so we know who the question's coming from. So we'll start over here with Barbara. Hi, Barbara Stevenson, Vice Provost for Global Affairs and longtime friend of Jim's. Graham, I was just fascinated listening to you talk about how strong Russian public opinion in favor of the war remains, even with the high casualty count. And I'm wondering if you think there are any kind of limits to that. I have heard it said that we're more Slavs from Moscow and St. Petersburg to be coming home in body bags rather than boys from prisons and from outlying areas, that it might be different. Do you agree with that or do you think this is just not going to have the potential really to significantly shift Russian public opinion? So I think it's always a risk, right? We were surprised by the extent of the casualties and surprised by the, the lack of response to it. And maybe it is because it's so, uh, these, these politically you know, not well-represented groups and, 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 and whatnot. And, so, and the Kremlin itself has been really cagey about announcing that they've said there's going to be no more full-scale mobilization. They've never called it a full-scale mobilization they're very, very cagey about that. But I do think there is a sort of, you know, over, over time, the Russians have proved much more uh, robust in their capacity to tolerate casualties than we expected. And so I don't know where that ends, but it's certainly we're already beyond the point that we more that most of it thought, thought when this thing began. Yeah, I think the casualties is such an interesting piece because, you know, even coming from the intelligence community, Putin doesn't want to have casualties. What did they learn from Afghanistan? He's so averse to having casualties. And yet, what are we over 500,000 at least on the Russian side and, and it hasn't been an issue. 
The one thing I'm also reminded of is there's some good political science work that talks about um, different leaders' ability to tolerate casualties, and it's the personalist autocrats who are particularly immune to casualties because they are good at redirecting costs away from their politically most important Russians. And so, right. again, it, where, where that ends is hard to say, but they tend to be the most. So we, we did we did a survey experiment in which we asked about different kinds of casualties. And so we said to, to people, you know, okay, the Putin's announced that we're going to attack Kiev again. Um, and, you know, how, how do you feel about that? And then we said, well, Putin's announced we're going to attack Kiev again. And, and you know, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians will die. Didn't affect anyone's opinion on it at all. We said hundreds of thousands of Russians will die. Didn't affect anyone's opinion on it at all. We said uh, some of your friends and family will die. Oh, and that had a massive effect on everybody. And so there, I think there's a, there is a kind of personal connection here that Russia, you know, Russia is a big country. It's got a lot of people. And I think so long as people, not too many people feel that personal connection, then, then it's pretty robust. Sam, you made the point earlier, too, with, you know, that he's tried to avoid another major mobilization in large part because it was, I mean, it was damaging to the Kremlin initially when all of a sudden Russians had to participate in the war. Do you expect that after the election that Putin will mobilize or what, 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 do, you, what do you think? No, I, I, I don't really. I mean, I think it becomes easier after the election, right, all things being equal. But I think that um, the... Reality is that he can put enough men on the on the battlefield, um, you know, to keep things going um, and keep the pressure on Ukraine, uh, you know, at the moment. Um, you know, it, it seems really odd every time I say this, but this is a fundamentally a risk averse political regime, right? Um, the reality is that you know, as uncertain as we are of what's going on and what you know the the uh, the structure of uh, that is that's holding them up. You know, they're uncertain as well. And there's a lot of things that they don't know. And, and the consequences, you know, if Graham and I get things wrong, we look silly, right? Um, if if Putin and his handlers get things wrong, things can can become much more catastrophic, right? Um, so, uh, you know, they, I think, will be unwilling to take the risk of um, a large-scale mobilization, even another, you know, 2022-style partial mobilization, um, uh, just because it's it's not clear what benefits it will bring in terms of the the outcome of the war, right? Uh, and uh, there is reason to believe that it will cause political problems for them uh, at home. And again, you know, things are going relatively well uh, uh, for him, both from a, a military recruitment perspective at the at the the level that they're operating, uh, and um, and on the battlefield. I don't see uh, a pressing need for him to uh, to try his luck. All right, we've got more questions. So back here. Hi, I'm Emma Sampson. Thank you all for being here. Um, I was wondering what you thought the role of disinformation and censorship is in uh, altering Russian domestic public opinion on the war in Ukraine. Graham, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So th this is a you know this is a really interesting question that you know, lots of people have done lots of research on, um, and there's different views. The one the one the one that I like the best. Um, is that, you know, Russia has put out lots of different stories about what this war is about. So, you know, it was about American nuclear weapons. Uh, it was about, you know, the, the murder of, of Ukrainian, of, of, of Russian speakers living in Ukraine. Um, it was, it's about American agents, but all sorts of different, different things, right? Many of which are just completely not credible. And so what, one perspective on this is to say, well, you know, the point of this propaganda is not to convince anybody about these silly stories, but it's in muddy of the waters. 
And it's to give people kind of a menu of different reasons why they might think this was okay. And if you don't like the story about saving you know, Ukrainians and in, 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 in Russian speakers rather than Western, in Eastern Ukraine, then you don't need to do that one. You could do this other one, right? And so it creates enough sort of credibility, enough, enough room that people can give themselves an excuse. So we're not fighting Ukrainians, we're fighting fascists. Great. Okay, let's do that. And I think that's really the main role. It's also important in a context where Russians could actually go online still fairly easily and find out what's actually going on in the world. So it's not the Soviet Union, right? So in that context, what you want to do is, is just kind of mess things up and give people a reason to, to accept what you're saying rather than convince them of what you're saying is actually true. Great. Next question. Hi, I'm Sada Channa. Um, with the rise of private military companies such as Wagner and um, Putin's mismanagement of their rise and control in power, do you think that um, poses a verifiable threat to Putin's control of Russia? And if that is um, a presence an issue with the Russian public? A great question. Sam, you want to go first? That really is a fabulous question uh, and uh, and an interesting one uh, to which I'm afraid we don't have an answer. Um, But, you know, one of, again, coming back to sort of our models of Russian politics, which again may be shifting, right, um, and may need to shift further. But, you know, one of the things I think we had always thought was that Putin's role is to manage competition among the elite. This is a fundamentally, you know, rent-based system. So you have people in the elite who are, you know, in, in the game for the purpose of extracting uh, flows of money uh, from the various things that the state does, whether that's giving people licenses to extract oil and gas from the ground, or whether that's in the case of the war, uh, you know, giving people contracts to go and produce weapons and fight the war and put men on the battlefield and 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 that sort of thing. Um, it's probably you know inevitable that the war was going to end up being another field of of rent seeking, uh, but it's a very different kind of rent seeking, right? It's a rent seeking that really cuts at the heart of of uh, national security and Russia's ability to uh, engage in geopolitics. It's also a rent-seeking that involves uh, you know, heavily armed people and people with, with tanks and the ability to roll those tanks up the road from Rostov to, to, to Moscow. So um, it, it was, I think, a mistake, a fundamental mistake uh, of the Kremlin to allow the war uh, and the military machine to be subjected to the same kind of logic that governs the rest of political economy in Russia, even uh, if it was probably... Uh, inevitable. Um, we would have also thought that the fact that Putin is, as um, as you said, uh, you know, mis- mishandled this. I mean, he should have seen. We could all see, right, the conflict arising between uh, Prigozhin and and Shaigu, the defense minister. We should have. He should have been able to um, prevent it from getting to the stage. Uh, that it did. It shouldn't have required, you know, Lukashenko to get on the phone and 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 broker some kind of uh, of a deal. If indeed that's what happened, and that certainly seems to be the message that the rest of the Russian elite got, right? So that should have created a problem, not just in the military sphere, uh, but should have sent a message to the rest of the Russian elite that you know Putin is losing the plot to a certain degree, right? That he is no longer a- as skillful in managing the conflicts among the elite. Uh, as he had been, which means that the system can get out of balance and we can end up in a much more you know, messy situation uh, than we uh, than we want to be. And so perhaps we need to find somebody who can do all of this better than Putin is able to. Um, at the end of the day, right, it hasn't had that effect. Right? We haven't seen 
the elite uh, respond to this stimulus in this particular way, uh, which might be might mean that they didn't have the opportunity. It's certainly not a not a, an easy response to muster, uh, but it also might mean that in fact uh, you know the the relationship between the elite uh, and Putin right now is different than it was. Uh, in the past or than we uh, understood it to be, that it is uh, a role of much more subservience with much more power concentrated uh, in the Kremlin, and maybe the Kremlin uh, is less beholden to the elite than uh, than we imagined before. Yeah, the, we've talked about this, I think, just on a previous podcast with Fiona Hill last week. And I mean, I think the, the point that you raised, too, is just such a good one, because it does seem like as Sam was saying, like there has been kind of a devolution and, and um, an allowance of alternative centers of power, including with access to weapons. Like that cat was a little bit out of the bag. You know, they're obviously trying to rein it in and put uh, uh, control over those groups under individuals who are more compliant to the Kremlin, but it's a difficult thing to control. But more broadly, you really do see now the regions have the legal ability to, ri- to raise their own private military companies in order to subside unrest should they need to. You're seeing all of the kind of returning fighters who have access to weapons. You're seeing the Roskvardia, the kind of the the, the, the unit there uh, now has the ability to access heavy weapons. And so it is interesting and, and, and worth thinking through what will be the implications of that, including in a succession type of scenario, maybe it raises the prospect that it is a little bit more violent and chaotic than it might otherwise have been. So it is important, an uh, important dynamic to watch. Uh, understanding that another wrong assumption early on in the, the second invasion was that uh, the, all of the cronies around Putin were going to take him down because they their own uh, their own pile of money and their own uh, powers was being impacted by a failing war. And so there was an expectation widely accepted for a while that uh, whether it was, uh, you know, Rogozin or one of the elites were going to take down Putin. And of course, that never happened. So um, that's another thing that uh, has to sober us up in terms of our predictions. Yeah. All right. Another question. Okay, perfect timing. Um, my name's Catherine, and I was actually going to ask about um, the Prigozhin affairs and its long-term effects on public perception of the war. Um, you guys kind of hit on it in a political sense, but I was wondering if it posed a threat to the legitimacy and um, like even the efficacy of the Russian military to actually stay in this war. Yeah, great question. Yeah, very good. Graham. Do you want to take that? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question and, and one that I've been thinking about a lot. And I think we've all we all, as Sam said, expected this to be this momentous event. And 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 the sight of these you know military units heading towards Moscow, like I hadn't seen that since I was a kid. So it was very exciting. <laughs> um but then Putin dealt with it really sort of masterfully, right? Bogosian was gotten rid of, his businesses were were dispersed back into the rent machine that, that Sam mentioned. Um and yet, it's some, and then, and, and so he somehow seemed to kind of recover his his game, as though he was off for the, for some reason, and then he pulled it back together again, and and it had zero resonance, I think, in terms of public opinion. Um, I certainly I, don't, I haven't seen any polls that make you think anything. I mean, which which just think about it, like so. This is a regime that even when you know a rebel unit comes into the country and starts heading towards Moscow, and Putin's you know. Popularity, his credibility, with mass opinion, totally unshaken. Did it make him stronger? Do you think? Do you think he emerged with at least an aura of uh, of uh, 
not invincibility, but that he's a pretty strong guy. I mean, how many times did we say on podcasts and stuff, this weakened Putin, yeah. this is the end of Putin? I mean, I, I said it a bit, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'm wondering maybe because he didn't fall into pieces, uh, he's a bit stronger now. So the day that I heard of Prigozhin's assassination, I had this weird feeling in my stomach that was, okay, the world is back the way I understood it. Again. Yeah, yeah. Like I almost felt relieved in this weird way, right? <laughs> And it was, yeah, so Putin does turn out to be as, as you know, in control and as as, as, as much of a badass as, as, as yeah, we had all God. assumed that he was, yeah. right? Yeah. And we had been shaken in that. And I think so in, in a perverse way, it did. It was a real challenge and he brushed it off. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a really wonderful quote. I think it was from um, the director of CIA, Bill Burns, who obviously is a, a wonderful Russia expert. And, and he said something like, well, it wasn't the episode, it wasn't an instance where we realized the emperor had no clothes, but people wondered why he got dressed so slowly. Right. Right. Because there, there was this uh, the long period of time in between from when he finally re- decided to respond and, and, uh, and do away with Prigozhin, but it took a long time, and people were scratching his head. How could Putin let this stand? And so that was that was really fascinating. All right, one more question back here. Yeah, uh, Vita Golat, Ukrainian sinologist. Uh, question of my personal uh, concern: How do you see uh, Ukrainian-Russian coexistence now in the future in people-to-people relations? That's a wonderful question. And maybe this will be our last question. So kind of like that's a wonderful place, I think, to kind of wrap this up. And Sam, maybe we'll start with you and then Graham, you can add on. Um, It is an important question. And I've been lucky enough here at SIPO over the last um, year and a half to work with an excellent group of colleagues from both Ukraine and Russia um, you know, here in our in our office uh, in uh, in Washington, it has not always been easy. It has always been fascinating. But um, I think the beginning of that process, in fact, I think the end of that process, um, has to do with um, uh, with Russia. Um, if Russia is going to be able to live in peace with its neighbors, um, and frankly, live in peace with itself and with dominated populations within, you know, the Russian Federation as it's currently constituted. Um, Russians, including Russians in, you know, what we think of as the democratic opposition, the liberal opposition, the anti-war opposition, um, uh, have to learn a new language. Uh, and I, I, we're beginning to see the first stages of that uh, in the diaspora, in the exiled communities. I think it's impossible for that to happen uh, on the ground in Russia uh, itself at the moment. Hopefully, it can start uh, in exile and then make its way back uh, to Russia. Uh, but a language that allows Russians to understand what they're hearing from Ukrainians, to understand the grievances of Ukrainians, and not only Ukrainians, but Ukrainians first and foremost. Uh, as they're expressed, that allows them to, um, uh, you know, genuinely understand what's being said. In some cases, to not respond, but just to listen, um, not to defend themselves, not to make excuses, um, uh, and then to process uh, the uh, the issues of of culpability, of liability um, that uh, accrue to um, uh, to Russian citizens, just as um, you know as we've seen in, in, in other states. And in fact, as we, as we see, um, you know, even in our own lives, um, you know, whether uh, here in the U.S. or or in the U.K. or in Europe or in other places where we all have histories of, of, of domination and injustice to grapple with, this is not an easy uh, uh, process. But I don't see 
um, a prospect of of peaceful coexistence, right? Um, without that, um, I think, however, that Ukraine's um, future cannot be held hostage to that um, uh, to, to to that process, right? Uh, and, and this is equally important that Ukraine needs to know, and we, as the United States, as as the West more broadly, need to communicate uh, to Ukraine not through words, but through um, uh, real security arrangements um, that. Um, we will uh, keep Ukraine uh, uh, secure um, uh, even until, right, uh, and even unless Russia never actually makes that transition uh, to uh, to thinking about itself differently uh, and its role in the world differently. Thanks, Sam. That was really great. I don't know, if, Graham, if you have anything you want to add. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to talk about this a little bit from the Ukrainian side. Um, since 2012, I've been doing a lot of research in Ukraine, a lot of surveys around identity, around attitudes to NATO and the EU and language and those kinds of things and spent a lot of time in the country. And, and uh, what's really, Ukraine was a very divided society politically uh, and to a certain degree culturally. Um, and since really since uh, 2014, um, since the Euromaidan, uh, since the Russian invasion began, um, that has really, uh, solidified Ukrainian identity. It's changed the nature of Ukrainian identity. It's made it, and this is you know, partly the, the political brilliance of, of Zelensky. It's made it possible to be a Russian speaker and be from the south of Ukraine and be a patriotic Ukrainian. Um, that was a very diff difficult position to be in. Um, it wasn't really on the political menu in Ukraine until Zelensky came along. Uh, and that has, 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 has simplified and dramatically strengthened Ukraine as a country and Ukraine as a polity uh, since since the beginning of, of, of the Russian invasion. And this full-scale invasion has only done more uh, to do that. Um, so I think Ukraine, you know, you know, the Ukrainians are going to be all right in, in, as Ukrainians. But in order to uh, forgive and begin to, to you know, move past the crimes that Russia has committed, Ukraine, Russia has to make restitution. Ukraine has to get its territories back. And by that, I mean all of its territories. And unless that happens, it's going to be very, very difficult for Ukraine ever to enter into a, you know, a, a serious partnership negotiation as, with, as, as equals with, with Russia. And so the idea that we could somehow you know, encourage or force the Ukrainians to accept a, a, a settlement that left Russian control of parts of their country, that's just storing up problems for, for, for the future, not just on the Russian side, but I think also on the Ukrainian side. And Ukraine will have to be in NATO and the EU. Yeah. We have to do that. This was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, Graham and Sam, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you um, to all the students here for your really fantastic questions. Um, we're looking forward to hearing those uh, play live on the podcast coming out. So be sure to, to tune in and, and hear yourselves uh, on that recording. And again, thanks for hosting us um, and for this wonderful opportunity to be here with you all. Thank you so much. And listen to Brussels Sprouts every week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.